welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about the times that the scriptures have become real for us, and we believe that when they're real, we draw more power into our lives and that uh, we need that power as much as we can get. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and uh, I'm excited to have with me a, a friend and colleague, uh, Joseph, although we, we call him Joe Spencer, uh, who just has so much to offer and to bring to us today. So welcome, Joe. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, my, my pleasure. Uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you're doing, and then we can jump into the scriptures. Uh, sure. Uh, I'm uh, So I'm on the faculty in ancient scripture at Brigham Young University, uh, and where I teach primarily, almost exclusively, Book of Mormon classes, uh, because that's my uh, academic bread and butter. Um, my training is in philosophy. Uh, so uh, I hear words like real scriptures are real and i go yeah real what do we mean by real that's me <laughs> yeah good point <laughs> but i uh, but i uh, i bring philosophy and theology to bear on how we read scripture and what it means to read scripture and how scriptural texts uh speak to us uh especially the book of mormon so that's kind of what i do now yeah. uh great stuff and and i've just loved the work that joe has done and uh, especially with Book of Mormon and Isaiah and so on, uh, it's just fun stuff. That, so many different perspectives that we can bring to the scriptures and to the gospel to learn from each other. So, well, uh, Joe, I know there are lots of times the scriptures have become very real to you, and I, I hope we'll talk about uh, other times in the future. But I, I know one of the times you've mentioned to me is the story of Joseph of Egypt, which is also one of my favorite stories. Uh, so uh, I'd love to just hear from you about that story and how it speaks to you. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I can actually sort of mark the moment, if you will, that this story came alive for me. Uh, it was when I read Robert Alter's The Art of Biblical Narrative. Yeah. Um, I was an undergrad. I had uh, been reading a fair bit in biblical criticism, right? Reading biblical scholars who most of the time analyze uh, texts into sources. Uh, we think this comes from this source and this comes from this source. And as an undergrad, I was trying to think about those kinds of things. Uh, and when I read Alter's book, he has this brief treatment there of the Joseph story. And he basically says, well, maybe sources, fine, whatever, but there's a coherence to this story that brings it to life. And, and the reading he offered uh, sort of woke me up, taught me how to read scripture better. Uh, he pointed out that Two parts of the story are both about garments, right, uh, that are in circulation in certain ways. Both uh, different parts of the story circle around goats <laughs> in interesting ways. And um, and uh, as I read what he was doing with it, I started to go, I've been reading this wrong. Like, I've been asking the wrong questions. And then rereading the story, uh, it felt to me like it had not only a kind of coherence, but it had uh, a real depth to it that I'd never seen before. I can riff on that for a moment if you want. I mean, the thing yeah. that really grabbed me at the time. Uh, like so many undergrads uh, at the time, I was, uh, I was reading uh, a lot of Hugh Nibley, just a ton of Hugh Nibley. And, uh, and so I was uh, sort of ready to see temple things anywhere I could find it. And one of the things that immediately jumped out when I saw Alter talking about uh, these two goats. So you have, uh, let me set that up, I guess. You have a story about Judah and a story about Joseph back to back, right? And in the story of Joseph, his brothers are upset with them and then they throw them in this pit and then uh, they decide they're going to sell them to these um, caravanners heading down to Egypt and uh, as a result uh, they have to come up with a, an alibi and so they uh, so they kill a goat specifically a goat mentioned they kill a goat and then they put its blood on his coat his famous coat 
and they show that to their dad. Uh, and then the story that immediately follows is the story of Judah being a really awful person. Uh, but he's uh, the story circles around a goat also. He's got to pay this woman, uh, and he sends a goat with his friend, Adula, to take out to her. Uh, and they don't, he doesn't find this woman. And so on, those stories obviously way more complex. I'm giving a very quick treatment there. And Alter pointed out that there are these two goats in it. And it struck me immediately well, there are two goats in the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament. Mm. Uh, and one goat, uh, you lay all of the sins on Israel, uh, of Israel on this one goat, and then it is sent out and goes wandering in the desert. But another goat is killed and its blood is applied uh, in an act of atonement. And I immediately went, well, whatever's going on with sources here. Uh, it's striking that this story of Judah and Joseph is circling around two goats, one who's, who's, who dies and whose blood is applied to a garment and another one who the goat is simply let out and sort of disappears wandering into the wilderness as it were. And I began to sort of see that there, there is a depth and a coherence to the story that I never would have guessed just from a reading of it. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful, beautiful stuff when you, when you start to see these parallels and so on. And, and, and maybe just for our listening audience, uh, Robert Alter, uh, who also uh, helped form some of the ways I think about uh, literature in the Bible, uh, it really, guy, a guy, he teaches at UC Berkeley, he is initially a literature specialist, but he also, I mean, he's Jewish, so he learned Hebrew growing up and so on, uh, and he turned his literary training to the Bible and has drawn out some fantastic things. He's done his own translations as well and so on, but just some fantastic things in terms of uh, the literary analysis of the Bible, which does bring a lot of beautiful things to life. Well, wonderful. So, Take us through some of the, the arc of the story and maybe some things that uh, that speak to you as you go through that story. Sure, yeah. So it was that that sort of woke me up to it and made me a reader of it. Uh, but what I, I love about the story, there's sort of two things that really I love. So part of it is the arc of the story. Maybe we'll circle back to the other. Yeah, so what you have here is a story of, of course, Joseph getting sold into Egypt. That's very famous, right? Then rising to power in Egypt. Uh, eventually, and um, and he finds himself in a situation where his brothers come to him uh, because a famine, right? Everyone knows that part of the story, right? Pharaoh has a dream, a couple of dreams, and uh, and Joseph interprets them and says there are going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine, and uh, Joseph ends up in power in Egypt precisely because of this. But because of the famine that eventually comes, his brothers come down after having sold him into slavery years earlier. They come down to Egypt and they end up in front of him and he recognizes them. They don't recognize him. And he, uh, at first it seems he's trying to get revenge, <laughs> right? Yeah. He, um, he's uh, playing games with them. He wants them to bring their youngest brother back the next time. He actually holds one of them in prison uh, while they leave, if they want to come back for more food, but he wants to see their youngest brother because it's his only direct brother, right? That he shares the yeah, same his full brother. Yeah. His full brother. But he's, uh, he's sort of playing games with them and so on. He's hiding their money back in their sacks and it causes all of this consternation and so on. But eventually they come back and they bring his, his full brother, Benjamin, with them. And, uh, and Joseph sees his brother and it's this deeply emotional experience for him. And eventually um, he's, well, I should say, he's still sort of playing games with them and sends them off on their way, but hides this goblet in Benjamin's sack, sends the police you've stolen my goblet. No, we haven't stolen your goblet. What are you talking about? You find it in one of our sacks, you kill whoever's got it. And of course it's in Benjamin's sack. And so now Benjamin's in real trouble. 
they bring him back and Joseph says, I'm not going to kill him. I'm a nice guy, but he is going to be my slave forever. And it's at that moment that the story comes to really just incredible fruition. When the, the brothers at the very beginning of the story decide to sell Joseph into slavery, uh, it's Judah who comes up with that idea. First, they're going to put yeah. him in it and just leave him there or something. But Judah's like, well, here come these caravanners. We can get some money out of this or something. But at the end of the story, when it, Benjamin's going to be a slave and this is going to kill their father, when he realizes he's lost his last connection to his wife, Rachel, it's Judah who steps up. Uh, he comes full circle and says, take me, take me in my brother's place. And, and Joseph finally breaks down and reveals who he is. And there's this incredible scene of reconciliation. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm glad Alter made me think harder about the text because uh, it's, uh, it's a kind of story that, okay, there's a story, this all happens, but reading it slowly and reading it carefully, it's a really incredible, very human story um, that like in some sense just gets at what life ought to look like. Uh, we got to get over our petty squabbles and our, uh, our desire to be in charge and so on and, and, and get along. And in the end, recognize that God can do good with all of the messy things we've done. So it's a really just an incredible story. I agree. Let's let's explore that part, especially yeah. that, that part with Judah just a little bit together, if that's okay. Sure. Because yeah, in, in my mind, we often think of Judah as the, the bad guy in the Joseph story. And there's certainly a tension between them. And that tension exists throughout the rest of the Bible between the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Joseph, so much so that Ezekiel's going to prophesy, well, eventually these, these tribes will come back together, right? This doesn't, this, this isn't a forever rift, but it's a long time rift. And so we often think of Judah as the bad guy, but but I think it's we can more properly look at this as as the redemption of Judah, like Judah um, becoming the hero in some ways at the end of the story, and and a prefiguring of Christ. I don't think it's an accident that Christ is descended from Judah when you see what Judah's doing here. And some of that is in the Judah and Tamar story, and we can talk about that another time, or I can do that in another podcast or something, but. But I love this contrast that you gave where, and, and remember why Judah wants to sell Joseph. And it's because Jacob favors him so much. Right? Jacob favors Judah. And, uh, and uh, I mean, he's sorry, he, Jacob favors Joseph and Judah can't take it. Neither can the rest of the brothers. And Joseph, you know, kind of helps the, them hate him by talking about dreams where they're going to bow down to him and so on. <laughs> I'm just going to assume that Joseph was inspired to say that because it's not like maybe politically savvy but uh but i, I, I don't know maybe he's just <laughs> too young to get what he's doing or he's inspired to share it or something i don't know but it is this jealousy that drives judah but i also have the feeling based on just a couple of things that judah says in the text that judah did not anticipate the effect this would have on their father yeah. and that in some ways it breaks judah's heart who loves jacob there's no doubt he loves jacob and in some ways, it breaks Judah's heart to see what he did uh, to his father. And you get that a little bit when he's talking to Joseph. Uh, if you go to, I think it's Genesis 43. Uh, no, 43, it's in uh, 44, sorry. Uh, and if we go to verse 7, and this is Judah. When So as, you, you told the story, right? When they brought Benjamin back and they say mm -hmm. to, uh, to Joseph, uh, look, uh, we we don't think he stole the cup. What are we going to do here? Don't kill him. Kill one of us or something like that. And uh, and 
Joseph to say, no, this is how it's going to work. And so Judah says, I need to talk to you. And, uh, and he says, thy servant, verse 27, thy servant, my father said unto us, ye know that my wife bare me two sons. And the one went out for me. And he's talking to Joseph, ironically, about that, right? Mm-hmm. And the one went out from me and said, surely he is torn in pieces. And I saw him not since. And if he take this also from me and mischief befall him, ye shall bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. Now, therefore, when I come to thy servant, my father, and the lad be not with us, seeing that his life is bound up in the lad's life. And I love that. It's, it's actually his soul is knit in the boy's soul. That's nefesh keshra, the nefesh is the phrase, but it's just a beautiful phrase. Uh, it shall come to pass that when he see it, the lad is not with us, that he will die, and thy servant shall bring down the gray hairs of thy servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. Uh, and you get this idea. He's saying, I just can't do that to my dad again. I've done it once. I can't do it. And you even get these little hints of the guilt uh, that they feel like. Uh, and the, fir- the first time they come down and they're having problems with Joseph and Joseph overhears them because they think that he can't understand them. And, and he overhears them saying, well, this happened to us because of what we did to Joseph. Right. So you get this hint that they, as soon as something bad goes, oh, this is because of the bad thing. So they've got some guilt. They've come to understand that this is bad. Right. Yeah. But the incredible thing to me is the, the growth we see in Judah. If Judah was jealous of Joseph because of how much Jacob loved him, he has plenty of reasons to be jealous of Benjamin. I mean, it's so clear that Jacob favors Benjamin that when Simeon, Simeon's been in jail, right? Joseph put him in in jail. uh, And he says, when you bring this other boy back, you can, you can get him out. And Jacob basically says, let him rot. I'm, I'm not sending Benjamin down. If that means I lose Simeon, I lose Simeon, but I'm not sending Benjamin down, right? So if you want to talk about reasons to be jealous, they've got plenty of reasons to be jealous of Benjamin. And if Judah is the same person he was when he was going to, when he sold Joseph, he's just been given the golden opportunity. Yeah. Oh, this seems to be Benjamin's fault. I can get rid of Benjamin through no wrongdoing of my own. In fact, it's justice and it's Benjamin's fault. He took the cup. Right, which he didn't, but it could sure appear like he did, right? If, if he's the same person, problem solved, he can get rid of Judah. But, I, I mean, sorry, I keep saying the wrong names. He can get rid of Benjamin. But instead, when he continues to talk to, to Joseph, he says this. Um, for thy, After he says, I don't want my father to come down with sorrow to the grave. Verse 32, for thy servant became surety for the lad unto my father, saying, if I bring him not unto thee, then I shall bear the blame to my father forever. Now, therefore, I pray thee, let thy servant, and by that he means himself, let me, Judah, abide instead of the lad, a bondman to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brethren, for how shall I go up to my father, and the lad be not with me, lest peradventure I see the evil that shall come to my father. So if you think about this, and you think in terms of parallels with Christ, basically what he's saying is, I promised my father I would bring Benjamin back. And through what seems to be Benjamin's own mistake, that's become difficult. But you take me and I'm bringing this boy home to my father. Right? I'll sacrifice myself to bring my brothers back to my father. And that's exactly what Christ has done. Right? That's ex- exactly what he's done. And, and that's a different Judah than the Judah that we saw selling Joseph or in the Tamar story. This is a Judah who has grown. And I, I would assume from seeing the pain that his actions have brought to others uh, yeah. that, that is grown. And, and in that way, the, the story is not only very touching to me because 
And as you said, there's so many real elements. We could spend hours going through the real elements of the crying and the uh, all the different human elements of this. But uh, but in particular, this one where Judah is willing to suffer Benjamin's fate mm. in order to bring Benjamin back to his father. Uh, that's that's not only helps me understand Christ, but it gives me hope. I, I don't think I've ever been at the point where I was willing to sell my brothers to get rid of them. Maybe a couple of times to hit them a few times, but, uh, but not, you know, so I, I don't think I've been as bad as Judah. So it gives me hope that I can become as good as Judah became, right? This idea of redemption and growth is, is really powerful. Uh, so that, that, now that was me talking a lot. Sorry, but you got me into it. You got, you got me going. I think, I think that's a, that's a powerful story arc. Yeah, I yeah I agree, and uh, I like that uh, earlier you connected this to the longer history of Israel, right? This any ancient Israelite would have read this story and said, "This is our story, right?" Yeah, <laughs> two nations that have divided, and Judah and, and Ephraim slash Joseph are always at odds with each other. These two, the northern and southern kingdoms, and so on. And this story holds out this promise of like, get over yourself, right? As a nation, yeah. a whole nation, can you come to understand who you are rightly in a way? that you'd be willing to offer yourself for each other, right? Uh, and the second you can do that, there will be real reconciliation here. Yeah, yeah, so you're right. There's another uh, important part of this story, the, the idea not only of reconciliation, in a, in a way, Ju Judah becoming uh, that kind of person is, is a little bit about our ability to be reconciled with, with our father, yeah. right? But, and I can't imagine, by the way, what that, what that's, what that scenario looks like when they go back and they say, Joseph's alive. Uh, <laughs> and, and honestly, I'm not sure if they ever told Jacob the whole story. Um, yeah. Because when Jacob dies, then, then they're, they're afraid again. Okay, now maybe Joseph's going to come out against us, right? So there may have been this understanding. Let's just keep dad happy. Where Everything's going to be status quo while dad's alive. And then we'll see. So I don't know if they ever told Jacob the whole story. But still, that's 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 kind of a crazy element of the story. But But it does help them reconcile with their father. But you're right that this... This idea that Judah and Joseph are reconciled gives us hope for being reconciled with each other, uh, mm -hmm. even when there are serious rifts as this. I mean, you don't really get much more of a serious rift than uh, your brother's selling you into slavery. Uh, that's, that's a pretty serious rift, and yet it's overcome. And that's, that's a powerful thing that I think you're right, does speak to their future generations, including us. We're part of that story now, us today. Yeah, yeah and, I, and I think there's another interesting echo uh, in all of this that took me longer to see than just appreciating the story. But in as much as we speak of the Book of Mormon as the record of the stick of Ephraim, and we speak of the, the Bible as the record of the stick of Judah, and Ezekiel prophesies uh, of these two tribes being reconciled, and in some connection, like Doctrine and Covenants and other places, connect this to that to the Book of Mormon and the Bible, uh, even right in 2 Nephi 3, then I, there's a whole other reading of this story that I think uh, is deeply interesting, right? Joseph goes into exile in Egypt. That's something like the Book of Mormon being buried, hidden away in a land that no mm. one knew about in the biblical context, uh, and the possibility of it coming forth and creating a kind of reconciliation in, with the Bible requires, in a certain sense, this is a weird way to put it, in terms of a record, but almost like a certain kind of self-humiliation or self-humbling on the Bible's part, right? It has to recognize or has to be recognized as by us, uh, not the whole story, right? It has right. to, it's jealousy, so to speak, as scripture, so that there's space for both 
of these records to be in circulation and with real reconciliation to bind these texts together and make for the, the whole restoration and the triggering of the gathering of all of Israel and all the things we're living through. Yeah, I've never thought of that before, but that's 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 wonderful and powerful uh, because really, and, and as you say, and in a way, I mean, we can speak of it as if the records themselves are doing it, but of course it's really us, right? And And we all know people who are unwilling to admit that there's any problem with the Bible and that there's more that we would need besides the Bible. And we all know people who with joy embrace the opportunity to receive more uh, when they hear that there is more and to have that flood of light added to the light that the Bible already gives us. And, and I guess we have to ask ourselves which one we are and not in terms just of the Book of Mormon and the Bible, but just in terms of what we are and what we know and are we willing to say, uh, okay, we're not enough and we want more from God and uh, from whatever source it comes from. So I, I'd never thought of that before. That's, yeah. that's a great thought too. Thank you. No, thanks. Yeah. And I think, I think well, in some sense, every part of the story has a little, a little something there for thinking about the relationship between these records. One of the things we tend to do as Latter-day Saints uh, is we've come, especially in the last half century or so to privilege the book of Mormon in a really intense way to the point that like the Bible scholars among us Latter-day Saints get a little, they feel a little consternation, <laughs> right? Yeah. Do we care enough about the Bible and that kind of thing? But also that there's a sense in which we can end up being a bit like Joseph when he starts playing around with his brothers, right? Uh, kind of messing with them. In some sense, we can do that. We can dismiss Judah. We can dismiss the Bible, not let it play its role and so mm -hmm. on. We have to have our hearts broken in some sense too and realize this book is calling for our attention. Joseph has to be reconciled to Judah as much as Judah has got to be reconciled to Joseph. Uh, that's good. And the Book of Mormon itself, it talks about how the books are designed to work together and bear a record of each other. And, and you're right, sometimes, uh, sometimes in our uh, well-placed fervency for the Book of Mormon, we neglect other uh, inspired scripture that we shouldn't be neglecting. And so hopefully this year, uh, we're, we're overcoming that. So let's yeah, yeah here's like where we're uh, Well, <laughs> yeah. great. And you mentioned earlier that there was maybe another part that you wanted to come back to. Yeah, well, this, this would get into the Tamar business. Uh, it goes in a very different direction. So it depends on how far you want to go down that road. <laughs> I, I, I like the Tamar story, so. Okay. So for those who aren't as familiar with this, and it's maybe just worth summarizing because my students tend not to be, at least when I uh, bring this story up. Yeah. Um, you have this story. This is Genesis 38. We've got this story of um, right after we get Judah being sold, uh, sorry, Joseph being sold into Egypt. So we can both mess up all the names. Yeah. yeah. Uh, right after Joseph gets sold into Egypt, we have this sort of like, meanwhile, back at the ranch scene, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's this complete interruption in the midst of, of the Joseph narrative. Uh, as a foil, as it were. But anyway, yeah. yeah exactly. And uh, and what we get is a story about Judah. He's got these three sons. He marries the first one off to this woman, Tamar. Something weird is going on there, and his son dies. So by law at the time, then Tamar ends up marrying the next son, right? And he's supposed to raise up seed to the first son. Second son doesn't like that. He also does some unseemly things. He ends up dead. So now the third son, Judah's last, uh, is uh, supposed to be married to this woman. He says, Tamar, you go, stay at your father's house, and so on. I'll call for you eventually. But he doesn't. He doesn't fulfill his obligation. She sees right. And so she goes and dresses as a prostitute and essentially uh, goes and waits somewhere where she knows Judah is going to come by. And sure enough, Judah solicits her. 
and she gets pregnant by him. Uh, it's this kind of wild story, but she has his, uh, his staff and his ring uh, as, uh, as tokens so that he can send payment later. This is the goat I referred to earlier. Uh, he goes back home. He sends the goat with his friend, go get my staff and my ring back and so on and give her this goat as a payment. She's not there because she's not actually a prostitute. Uh, and everyone there is, uh, we don't know who you're talking about. Judah kind of furrows his brow and moves on, it seems. But then when he hears that this woman is pregnant, because she's gotten pregnant by him, because she's supposed to be married to his youngest son eventually, he says, oh, she's, she's been unfaithful. Uh, bring her out. She has to be burned. She has to be punished for this. And when she comes out, tell me who these are, the staff, this ring. And, uh, and Judah says, she's been more righteous than I have been. So there's the basic story for anyone who's not familiar with it. This story, I think, is really quite striking. And it's clear to me that the text has these stories back to back, this story and the story that immediately follows it in Genesis 39, because we get just a, a sort of study and contrast right mm -hmm. after the story about Judah being a kind of oppressive figure toward women, uh, right, a kind of manipulator of, of women's destiny and all of this kind of thing. It's followed immediately by Joseph and Potiphar's house, a very famous story where we have Joseph uh, in what could be a sexually compromising situation, but he flees from the temptation completely. Right. So Joseph is portrayed as the sexual innocent side by side with Judah as the sort of sexual oppressor. And so the stories themselves are deeply interesting and, and some, there's a lot that can be dug into them uh, in various ways, I think. The thing that struck me just a, a, just a few years ago, I was working on um, gender in the Book of Mormon is one of the topics I work on quite a bit. And, uh, and I was working on this question of how Jacob, the prophet Jacob in uh, Jacob one through three is addressing what's happening with women in Nephite society after the death of Nephi, the king. The first right, king. so to be clear, this is the Book of Mormon, Jacob, yeah. not the Genesis, Jacob. Correct, yeah, we're now shifting to the Book of Mormon for a moment. And, um, and yeah, we've got this sermon that Jacob gives at the temple where he's berating the Nephite men for what they're doing. They're taking many wives and concubines or at least desiring to do so. And, uh, and he's deeply concerned about what this means for women. And um, he points out that Nephite men are appealing to David and Solomon, these kings from Judah, very specific, mm -hmm. uh, and saying, well, they were doing this. We're just doing what these kings were doing. Uh, and then Jacob goes on to say, look, God brought you. I, mean, I should actually just quote the text instead of summarizing it here. What Jacob says is. Wherefore, thus saith the Lord, so he's quoting the Lord, eventually it becomes clear that this is a revelation that came to Lehi much earlier, but thus saith the Lord, I have led this people forth out of the land of Jerusalem, Judah, by the power of mine arm, that I might raise up unto me a righteous branch from the fruit of the loins of Joseph. And I wonder if sort of tucked in the back of the text there, and maybe it was very clear to the original audience, uh, just given their proximity to these things, I wonder if tucked in there is this kind of uh, pointing to the story of Judah and Tamar and of Joseph and Potiphar's house, a kind of don't point to Judah and to what's going on with the kings of Judah and say, we're just doing that. You're Josephites. We're the ones who aren't oppressing women. We are the ones who don't have that story in our background. We're the ones who flee from that kind of temptation. And God picked us up and brought us out of Jerusalem to change what's happening for women in Israel. Jacob will go on to say, all through the lands of Israel, women are crying to God because of what's happened to them. Uh, because of the wickedness of their husbands. And I wonder if Jacob has actually got the Judah Tamar story in his head here a bit to try to get them to say, Joseph, that's the model. That's the model. Flee from temptation. Don't do this wickedness before God. 
That's fascinating. I have not thought of that before either, but I think you're, you're, you're right. I think these, this original audience, right, Jacob's audience, is very, very aware of uh, where they've come from, of the mm-hmm. tribe that they're are from, and its relationship to the tribe they've just come from, uh, and, and so on. So I, I think you're right that uh, it's going to be hard, at least Jacob, and I would assume his audience, but hard for Jacob not to have that in his mind as he's thinking about it and you're right the, the contrast between judah and joseph and their their virtue and lack thereof uh in this part of the story again i think that that judah right. grows but this is this is the part of the story where he's not doing well so we've got two chapters where judah's at his worst right he's just sold his brother and now this whole story with tamar um and the, the contrast between judah and joseph is very stark i think that that it does serve as a foil 38 in the middle of uh, 37 and 39. Uh, you've got in the, in the middle of stories about Joseph, you've got Judah as the supervillain, right? Um, having to do with women in particular, but, but also having to do with the way he treats his brother. Uh, yes. And uh, that's something that I think Joseph or Jacob would have definitely, as he's talking about these family relationships, would have had to have in mind. And, and it's, it's both about women, but it's about family as well, which the yes. Judah... Joseph's story is about in many ways. I mean, right. this story yeah. is about family. And that's that's one of the things that I, I think it's important for us to recognize is that the Bible is not just giving us a picture of perfect families. This is not a perfect family. Not at um, all. <laughs> but but they they work it out. And yeah. uh, and that's what families do, right? It's it's messy, but it can work. So yeah. anyway, sorry, you were about to say something. No, I was gonna say I think it's worth saying that Jacob goes on in Jacob three, same sermon. Uh, not only to have said what's, what's happening with women here in this situation is a disaster, but he'll go on to say, you've, uh, the Lamanites are doing this right. You've got to stop hating your brothers, right? You've got to stop hating yeah. them because of, the, uh, of their skin and all this kind of thing, right? He calls them out for racism, essentially, as well as oppression of women and just says, yeah, you've got to get relationship to women, right? And you've got to get your relationship to your brothers, right? So yeah, I think this story of Joseph and Judah and Tamar and so on is all just looming right there in the background all through that, that sermon. Oh, that's well seen. I have not seen that before. That's that very perceptive. That's that's fantastic. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. And and again, this is part of uh, when when the scriptures become real like this, they become so much more applicable to us. Because I know, I don't know anyone that doesn't have some kind of tricky thing in their family, right? We, the, the thing is, families are uh, where you get to see people at their best and their worst, and uh, and everybody has a best and a worst. And we have to figure out how to work our way through it. It's, it's a, a thing God's given us to kind of, it's a microcosm of the rest of the world, right? But to, to, to kind of the crucible in which we can be refined, mm. uh, if we will allow it to refine us. But it can also push us the other way if, if, if we don't. And that's the beautiful thing is that when these scriptures are real and we can see the, the way that Joseph is crying out when his brothers are selling him, the, the guilt that his brothers feel later, over uh, what they've done to him, the desire to change that they seem to manifest. Uh, and when that becomes real and we can see the way it moves them, and this is a really moving story in so many ways. When we see the way it moves them, hopefully we can take it to our own stories and say, uh, I want to be moved in a good way here. I want to forgive people. I want to give people another chance. Uh, whether that's family, neighborhood, whatever it is, where we work, whatever it is. Let's take these real stories and make them real enough that we 
become better because of them because we can identify uh, with those stories in our own lives. So I think yeah. you've really helped us do that. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, I'll just riff on that for one moment more because I really like the way you were putting that. And it struck me as you were talking that, uh, I mean, the Joseph story, the Joseph and Judah story ends the book of Genesis. And it really highlights a kind of practical problem that's very real for us every day, right? All through Genesis, this family, starting with Abraham, but coming all the way down to Judah and Joseph, this family is really good at getting uh, external relations right. Everywhere they go, they can create peace. Oh, there's a conflict over these cattle. Let's calm that down. Abraham's even willing to step between God and Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Every kind of external, outside of the family context, they're good at being kind and generous, over generous, making sure there's peace, but there's always trouble in this family. That's where it's mm-hmm. the hardest for us to be, to be civil, um, to figure out how, like the stakes always feel very high and emotions run very high and that's where it's the hardest. And this, all of the stories with Joseph and Judah as a kind of climax really kind of point that up. This is where jealousy can just really rip things to shreds and hurt us the most. But it's also the context where getting over yourself in real humility uh, can be the most affecting and the most deeply transformative. Wow. That's powerful. And that's worth maybe at this point in Genesis kind of reflecting on a little bit, right? So you do have I mean, the Ishmael-Isaac conflict, right? And we don't really see a full resolution to that other than that God says, I'll take care of this one. It may take a while. Let me let me handle this one. We'll, uh, I'll get it all worked out. All right, but then you get the Esau-Jacob conflict. Um, and that one is, is pretty nasty, but it does have a resolution, right? They do reconcile. And then you get the, the Joseph-everyone-else conflict, um, especially <laughs> Joseph-Judah conflict. And, uh, and that one's pretty nasty as well. And they they do reconcile us, I think. And in the middle of that, you have the Leah Rachel conflict, uh, and and Bila and, and, and Zilpa, yeah, and, and Sariah and, and Hagar. I mean, there are lots of of family things that are difficult. It, it's I don't know that we see full resolution. We don't between uh, Sariah and Hagar, but I think again, God's saying we'll work that out later. Uh, there may be some hints of it between Rachel and. Uh, and Leah, but I, I don't know that we fully see it. And, and Rachel dies, but we at least see it with these these sets of brothers, right? And uh, and that's worth thinking about how much the Old Testament in general, but Genesis is a story of families. And and you're right that where it's tough, they falter again and again and again, and yet they they persevere and they they bring it together. And in some ways, it's, it requires patience because. Yes, Judah and Joseph reconcile in some ways, but their descendants are still in the process of reconciling now, as is also true of, say, Ishmael, Isaac, uh, descendants, right? There's still some reconciling that needs to happen, but, uh, mm. but uh, it will, we know, and so uh, we just need to be patient and see these things play out. That's, that's great, uh, the way you framed that for us. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks. Yeah. All right. Anything uh, else about the Joseph story that you had you'd like to uh, chime in on? Or No, I think that probably covers it. I mean, just a plea. We take these stories seriously, right? There's, there is so much more here. I mean, m- maybe I should circle back to that sort of original insight that struck me when I was reading Alter way back when. If this story of estrangement and reconciliation and so forth really does open on a kind of subtle allusion to the Day of Atonement, then there's 
sense in which the whole thing is warning us in advance, good is coming, good is coming, right? There might be blood and there might be wandering and so on first, but all of this will result in reconciliation and redemption. And that feels like my life with Christ, right? That feels like my life in the gospel. Things can be ugly and complicated and it can be even violent and uh, and I can feel like I'm wandering with sin laden on my back, but this will, God is good. This will come full circle. That's a beautiful note to end on. And you're, you're right. This, this entire story that, that Joseph cycle, you could almost call it, but that, that entire story has colors and shadows all through it, uh, pointing towards our reconciliation with our father. And that's a beautiful element. So thank you. Well, th thank you, Joe, uh, and thanks to our listening audience. Hopefully, uh, this has helped the scriptures feel a little more real to you and, and helped you draw a little more power out of them. We're so grateful uh, for these scriptures and the power that we can draw from them. So thank you.